Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. It's July 9th, 2019, and this is episode 21. Hey, so many new people here. It's great to have you. Thanks for listening. A lot of you found the show through my documentary, 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk. That was the contents of the last episode, and you can also find the documentary at 36seconds.org if you didn't happen to listen to it. But the documentary tells the story of how the iOS platform became accessible to people with all sorts of disabilities. And I conducted a lot of great interviews, which you heard as little carved up sound bites in the documentary. And because those interviews were so great and because such a small percentage of what I talked about with developers and users and industry observers was put into the documentary, I wanted to take more time and play you a more or less complete version of some of these great interviews that I did. And I want to start out today with interviews I did with a couple of people who developed for iOS and who kind of accidentally discovered accessibility, but for whom it became important and a passionate interest over time. And you'll hear more about those stories as we go through the interviews. And uh, I'm talking about interviews I did with Marco Arment and with Matt Gemmel. Uh, Marco, a lot of podcast fans know him as a co-host of Accidental Tech and also of Under the Radar and Top 4 and some other relay shows. And uh, he's also the developer of Instapaper and the Overcast podcast player. Matt Gemmel is a longtime developer. He developed not only apps, but components and controls that he shared freely with the wider world and that found their way into a lot of accessible iOS apps early on. And Matt is no longer a developer, but he's still around. He pops up on Twitter and he has a lot to say about accessibility. And he was kind enough to take a few minutes to talk with me. So those are the two interviews you'll hear. Uh, I also want to put in a plug for those of you who are new to the show or who have been listening for for a long time and uh, are interested in uh, hearing particular kinds of content, topics, guests, that sort of thing. If you have anything or anybody that you would like to hear about on Parallel, I would love it if you'd hit me up over at Parallel Pods on Twitter or at my personal account, which is Shelly. Any ideas, any thoughts about the show that you have, I'd love to hear those. I can't promise we'll get those guests on, but the more people who say, this is somebody I'd really like to hear from, uh, the better my email to that person will be saying, hey, lots of people want to hear about what you have to say on Parallel. So just keep that in mind. And I should say, finally, we're not specifically an Apple-focused podcast. I have a long background as an Apple uh, journalist, but that doesn't mean that's all we talk about. So I don't feel like any guests or topics you might suggest to me have to be Apple-specific. Well, let's uh, get on with the interview with Marco. And before we do, I want to quickly point out that... uh, When we get to my interview with Matt Gemmel, you'll notice that my audio sounds quite a bit different, and you also might notice some microphone noise at various places. That's because I recorded at a different location where the sound wasn't ideal, and that was just a matter of timing and unavailability of the little podcast closet where I normally record. But uh, I've done my best to make everything sound as good as it possibly can, and Matt sounds fine, which is what counts the most. But for now, let's hear from Marco Arment. So tell me, uh, do you have any memory of, knowledge of, the, the, the idea that accessibility came to iOS in 2009? It's totally okay if the answer is no, but I'm just wondering if, you, if, if that was on your radar at all at that time. I don't think I knew when it happened. I, I knew it's been around for a while, but I, didn't, I don't think I knew it was 2009. What were you doing in 2009? I'm sure you were, were you doing Instapaper or Tumblr? Or where, where were you at that time? Uh, both. I was doing Instapaper on the side uh, while I was working at Tumblr during the day. Uh, so I, I okay. was doing an app that would have had accessibility technology. I don't know when I started actually testing for it and actually targeting it as like an area of, of effort. Because a lot of the stuff you just get for free. 
uh, with with a standard iOS sure. widgets and everything. And, and Instapaper was mostly a standard widget app uh, for most of its time that I that I owned it. So uh, so I, I kind of didn't really have to think about it for the most part because what like the the limited amount of accessibility features the system had, which is mostly limited to voiceover, um, that basically came for free for the controls I was using. I mean, is it is it correct to say that when somebody develops for iOS, they would naturally encounter accessibility features that specific, specific voiceover, I guess, but you would naturally encounter voiceover and then make a decision: yes, I will, or no, I won't bother to support it. You know, I don't think most developers even know it's there. Um, I, I think a lot of the accessibility features came and, or, and at least came to prominence with iOS 7 because iOS 7 was so inaccessible in so many different ways. And so over the first few releases of iOS 7 and, and I believe 8 after that, uh, Apple added things like bold text, uh, dynamic text sizing, uh, uh, reduced transparency, reduced motion, like all these different accessibility settings that were in addition to the ones they had before, like you know, before that, they had they had voiceover since '09. Uh, they had uh, things like switch control and guided access uh, pretty pretty early on. Um, so like, there's a whole bunch of accessibility features that they had before, but most of them I don't think developers even knew were there, let alone would test for them. And it wasn't until iOS seven that added a lot of these like visual preferences that a lot of people actually use just out of preference. You know, things like you know, boost contrast and reduce motion and stuff like that, that I think that's when developers started, it started getting on developers' radars that, oh, there's this whole section of settings over here called accessibility that changed the way my app looks or works, and I need to make sure that it doesn't break under those settings. Right. Now, you clearly were aware of voiceover specifically before because some folks referred to me referred me back to some old episodes of Build and Analyze where you talk about voiceover specifically, and in fact, at one point are kind of indignant that other developers just aren't even aware that this is there and and you you seem to be a little bit exasperated at that the fact that they haven't gone gone to the trouble of of finding it so i guess i wonder where your interest in or knowledge of that stuff came from and how you got to the point where you felt like other developers were falling down on the job you know i don't even remember how it exactly started but i know that the what the, the type of start i had was you know i was working on instapaper and i got a report from somebody once that said basically like, hey, if you use this app under voiceover, there's these four buttons that aren't labeled or something like that. Like, so, you know, some mistake I had made that affected voiceover. And that's when I started realizing, oh, this is this whole different type of using the app that I haven't considered. And therefore, I haven't designed for it. I haven't tested for it. I have no idea how my app behaves when using this tool. And so that's when it kind of hit me like, oh, wait a minute. This is this is a whole area I need to test for regularly, and you know it's it's kind of similar like when when people made you know when when web design was first becoming a big thing, uh, there was this whole movement against doing pixel perfect web design layouts because we realized pretty early on that any pixel perfect layout wouldn't really survive contact with the real world because in the real world you had different screen sizes, you had people resizing windows, this is long before mobile, but you had people resizing windows, you had browsers supporting different things or not supporting different things, different ways browsers would render certain tags and things like that. Uh, you know, all, these, all these different variability factors in 
how the real world would see your web page, such that a pixel-perfect layout would often break in reality. And so the web design community figured out pretty early on that what was really needed was like you know flow layouts that would use relatively minimal formatting and that could reflow to all different sorts of window sizes and everything else and, and different settings and all that stuff. It took iOS developers, I think, a long time to learn that lesson, even though by the time iOS was a thing, the web had learned it like 10 years earlier. <laughs> but but I, I think it took web designers or iOS designers a long time to learn that lesson of rather than making everything like individually pixel perfect for exactly this screen size of the only iPhone size that exists at the time, uh, rather than doing that, we needed something more dynamic, more you know reflowable, and that could adapt to different different visual settings and different accessibility modes. And so early iOS stuff, including most apps that most of us made, even Apple, um, were really not designed to do things like have different text sizes in the UI or to to be able to do things like button shapes or bold text or reduced uh, transparency or things like that. Most of that wasn't even on our radar because it hadn't even occurred to us to think about or consider or test how how the app would look in a completely different way than how we saw it when we were when we were designing it because many of these things didn't even you know many of these options didn't even exist yet so there was no different way it could look and also we were just kind of um, you know I, I think we were ignorant of the various conditions that could lead to our app looking different whereas now if you you know designing an app now any of these settings that people can can switch or adjust can make the entire layout of your app break if you've designed it to be too rigid if you've only designed it to be like the way i see it on my phone you have first of all tons of different screen sizes now even if apple you know gets rid of the four inch size uh you know this fall with the you know if if they get rid of the se support in software we still have to support that screen size because the iphone 6 7 and 8 can do display zoom to that size. So like, there's all these different screen sizes from very small to the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. <laughs> and, and so we have to make our apps scale to all these different screen sizes. We have to consider, there's probably going to be a dark mode in iOS pretty soon, so we have to consider light mode and dark mode. Um, there is also the invert colors option, which we have to consider how our app looks in that. We have to tag all of our images so they don't get inverted. Um, so there's all sorts of things, things like that. And there's things like voiceover and other accessibility features that rely on our app having a certain standard navigational structure, standard elements of the UI. And if we design it to be as rigid as we used to, this would be a nightmare of su- such a massive like test array of like how many conditions and combinations of things you have to test for. So it's actually a lot easier these days to design just like a really simple layout that is mostly text and button based that can flow easily, that can scroll if it needs to, that can be any combination of colors really and font sizes and everything else. Um, And then that also happens to work really well with things like voiceover and switch control and things like that. So I I think it's, it's a kind of thing that it, it took a huge mental shift from the way we developed iOS apps for the first at least five years of iOS has being a thing really um, to now where I think now there's a lot more awareness that we should be designing things in a more flexible way because we've been forced to really, but that's, that's, that's beside the point. Like, you know, really 
there's so much variation out there now. We don't. We no longer have just one size phone. We no longer have just one you know font size, just one visual theme. You know, we no longer have all those things in the environment that our apps run in. So it's easier for us as developers not to fall into making bad assumptions that how I see it is how everyone's going to see it. It sounds like designing for voiceover was considerably simpler than what you have to do now with all the screen conditions you describe and the you, the combination of accessibility features that have to do with visual, the, using visually. Uh, but I guess I wonder whether that level of complexity makes people likely to be more resistant or is the marketplace and the variety of ways people are using iOS, meaning that they're kind of forced to do what you're suggesting. I mean, the good thing about voiceover support and the other things that use the accessibility framework is that the accessibility framework is is pretty well built into all the standard controls, all the standard widgets. And even if you do some kind of custom widget that that requires like special accessibility implementation, they make it pretty easy. And 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 there were even a few additions in relatively recent versions of iOS, like at like nine and ten. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, that made it even easier like to do certain certain navigational tricks with voiceover and, and other assistive technologies. And so it's it's just so easy that no matter what the market you know demand or awareness of it is, as soon as you learn that voiceover exists, and as soon as you think that's a thing you have to consider, most conscientious developers who care about the quality of their app in general, will immediately become embarrassed about any voiceover flaws and will seek to fix it. And you can fix, for a given app, you can completely fix any voiceover problems it has in one day or less. Even if it's a complex app, even if it has a lot of custom controls and everything, if it takes you longer than one day, you're doing it wrong. Is that more true now than it was at the beginning? Oh, yeah. Um, and, and Well, hmm... I think there was kind of like a hump. Like at the beginning, it was actually pretty easy because apps were so much simpler. There weren't a lot of custom controls. There, there wasn't a lot of uh, deviation from standard, you know, UI kit stuff from Apple. Almost every app was just using standard controls in in, in standard ways. Um, and if you if you weren't, then you then you were deep in the weeds. But most people's apps back then were using standard stuff. So it, and and the iOS was so much simpler back then. And like so, like the the problem domain was so much simpler that I think it was actually really easy right up front to to have proper voiceover support. And then in the middle, we we got the ability to do all sorts of crazy stuff, and everything started getting more complicated. And then I think it it got harder in like the iOS. I don't know, maybe maybe like five through seven days, and then seven made everybody rethink everything because it doesn't redesign the whole system. And I think since then both the APIs have gotten a lot better and also there's a lot more capability built into the standard controls. And so not only are you able to use them more, but it's easier to program their accessibility features. So like, you know, if the standard controls couldn't do what a lot of people want to do as the industry matures and everybody wants to do fancier stuff, then people would more often go to custom controls from, from scratch. And that would actually hurt accessibility and practice most of the time but because apple has evolved what the custom or what the standard controls can do now like you can customize the controls so much that you rarely need to write your own control from scratch and therefore you get the system's accessibility features kind of for free like an example like an overcast my app um 
the um, the progress control where it, it shows like how far along you are in a podcast. That is a system standard slider. And it doesn't look anything like a system standard slider, but it works like one. And therefore, you know, because all it is, it's just like it's a it's a custom theme and, and a few custom like appearance options on a standard slider. And so by doing it that way, I didn't have to implement voiceover control of the slider. It just gets it for free because I just didn't make my own, you know, custom fake slider control. And the only reason I'm able to do that is because the system standard UI slider control is able to be customized to such a degree that I can have the nice custom look that I want in the app while still having it be the standard control. So in the, in the early days, there was a lot less customization than anybody was doing. Then it got really hard because everybody was doing lots of customization and the APIs weren't very sophisticated. Then Apple matured the APIs to make it easier for more developers to stick with the standard controls and also they made the accessibility APIs even easier to use. So we've come back to a point now where I think it's easier than ever now. So when you first became aware that voiceover was something that you needed and wanted to support, did you feel like the developer documentation and the tools themselves that Apple provided gave you what you needed? Did you have to dig much or was it right there to be found on the surface? Uh, honestly, the documentation is terrible. Uh, I, <laughs> it was not good at all. It was mostly f- learning through trial and error and internet forum posts and stuff, Stack Overflow, things like that, uh, a couple of blog posts about the subject. But the good news is that the accessibility APIs, like they're not very deep. There's not much to them. There's not a lot you have to do. Like there's like the most simple one that solves most people's problems is the accessibility label of a control that doesn't have its own text displayed on screen. So if you're rendering your own controller, if you have a button that doesn't have text on it, you have to tell the system what its name is, like settings or share. And that is literally something you can set like in Interface Builder. You don't even have to code anything if you're using you know, storyboards and stuff. And if you're using code, it's one line of code. You set, you set the accessibility label to a string. And that solves like 99% of most people's accessibility uh, uh, implementation problems. Because almost it, the biggest problem is unlabeled controls. So like right. that, that solves it right there. Um, and then even if you have something more sophisticated of, or if you have like a more sophisticated problem, like uh, like a screen that you can't navigate out of, uh, things like that, even those things aren't that hard. Usually you're talking about one line of code or implementing one function. Uh, so it really isn't that hard. So even though the documentation isn't very good, uh, the API isn't that big and isn't that deep. So it's pretty easy to just kind of self-teach and figure it out. But that requires some motivation, though. Somebody has to either have been prompted by a user or, you know, know that those APIs exist and need to go out and, and find them, right? So there's some level of... I mean, there's still apps that aren't, aren't labeled properly, oddly, but <laughs> there are a few out there. Uh, but I guess my question would be, so when you, uh, when you started to do this, were, were you finding that you could test your own accessibility? Did you have beta testers that you relied on? Or how did you get feedback on the work that you were doing? I mean, the, the best feedback that I've been able to get over, over the years of doing this is I try to have people in my beta tests who use these features. So people who use voiceover, people who use different text sizes, et cetera. Um, but not everybody has that. You know, not everybody can find somebody or knows anybody or, who, or can get people to help them test in that way. And beta testers, no matter who you find, no matter who you get, never find everything. So 
mostly I respond, I've, I, I've been able to be notified of problems and respond to them the same way I'm notified of any other bug in my app or any other design flaw in my app. And so I've, I've treated them as such. And, and I think, I think most people would get that same way. Like most people rely on if there's some condition in their app where things don't work right or things don't look right and they don't, I didn't, they, and they didn't catch it in their own testing. They're probably going to be notified of it at some point when somebody emails or tweets at them saying, Hey, did you know that this screen is totally broken when you have this text size or something like that? And so that's how I was first notified. Like people would say, Hey, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a voiceover user and you get these, you know, these, these unlabeled buttons here, or if you go to this screen, you can't get out of it, you know, problems like that. And what developers I think now do if, if they care is they treat that as if any as if it was any other design flaw. Like if any other screen in your app broke visually or functionally under certain conditions, you you would consider that a bug and you would try to fix it in the next update. And I think everybody can do that. And you know, so that is if you can catch it before it ships, that's great. And beta testers can help a lot there. But you know, I I have beta testers. I think I have at least ten voiceover users in my beta, and I still ship voiceover problems. Like I have in my current version of my app, I have a voiceover flaw that I just shipped uh, last week, and that I have to correct next week <laughs> when I ship the next version. <laughs> um, and it's not a major flaw. It's just like you know, I I labeled something in a way that makes it tedious to navigate in voiceover, and so I have to fix that. And I was I was changing it because I thought I was making something better. And I did make something better in different ways. And then, but my change, I didn't adequately test it for long enough. And, and so I didn't have a chance for the voiceover beta testers to say, hey, you know what? This actually is kind of tedious on this screen. It's better on this screen, but worse on this other screen. And, and so, you know, I have to fix that. Um, but it's just, these are just like any other design flaw in your app. It's like if a screen breaks in certain conditions or if, or if navigation breaks or functionality breaks in certain conditions that, the, that like the developer didn't see on their own phone, somehow they get notified usually via, you know, feedback or contact or, or, or maybe a review if you're unlucky. Um, and then you fix it in the next version. I'm guessing that you get the benefit of a lot of goodwill since you've been quick to make changes and you've sought out beta testers with, who are voiceover users, but I, I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, from my experience, developers who have not made it a practice to do this on a regular basis may be sort of less trusted by that community. I mean, have you, has that ever happened to you that you felt like people have uh, been concerned that you wouldn't fix something? Or do you feel like at this point you're kind of beyond that because your, your app is so well regarded in the community? I, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to know, like, you know, how would it be if I, if this right, wasn't right. the case, I, but, but I think, um, you know, th- based on the, like the emails and stuff I've gotten from voiceover users, I don't think most of them know whether I care about this or not. Uh, I don't think I'm getting a lot oh, that's of that. interesting. And, and I think, and, and there's been two consistent themes, um, from getting feedback from voiceover users over years. You know, it's, it's, it's been about a decade now. And so, over that decade, the two themes have been very, very clear. Theme number one, they are very, very polite and nice about it. Like, if I was a voiceover user and apps behaved the way they did <laughs> in voiceover, like with all, with all the various like neglect uh, and and bugs and everything that people ship, even like big companies ship, 
I would not be as nice as the average that I get. <laughs> so I'm very, very pleased that everybody has been very kind to me, even when I ship very embarrassing voiceover bugs. And number two, which kind of ties into it, I get the impression that voiceover users are just happy that someone cares at all, which is sad on a, on a level because it really means that the standard is pretty low. Like it means that it's, it's, you know, similar to like, you know, whenever I respond to, to a customer support email, which is honestly not frequently, uh, but whenever I respond to a customer support email, there's a pretty good chance that the person will respond back saying, oh, wow, I'm so happy I got a response. I, no one ever responds. And that's because the bar is so low. Or they say like, wow, you're, you're a person. You actually responded like usefully to the email and you knew what I was talking about. The bar is so low for customer support. <laughs> like people, people have such low expectations. And that's, that's kind of how, how the voiceover bug reports have always been for me, where I feel like voiceover users, unfortunately, are, are used to apps being really broken for them. And so it seems like they don't hold developers to as high of a standard as, as I would, honestly. Um, and so by, by me putting in any effort at all, it generates tons of goodwill from that community. And the good thing is, too, like voiceover is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so embarrassed whenever I fail to test it is because it's so easy to test. Like, especially now you can turn it on and off via Siri. Like, like it used to be that you'd have to like set the triple click accessibility feature on the home button right. to be voiceover toggling, and then you'd occasionally like be somewhere and you'd accidentally turn it on, and you'd hear voiceover on, like in the middle of a restaurant. Um, but now you can just turn it on and off via Siri. It's so incredibly easy to test with it, and you know, at first, if you've never used voiceover before as a developer, uh, you might not realize like what the gestures are to navigate around the app. But it takes like five minutes for the average developer to be able to look this information up and find a tutorial and learn it themselves. And then you can just navigate normally. And and so I think it's it's so easy to test now. <laughs> like there's there's kind of no excuse. And that's why I and I would encourage the voiceover community, honestly, to hold developers to a higher standard now because it's really easy for us to support this. And it's really embarrassing how poorly many of us do support it. I think there are times when the the standard does get high and people uh, bleed a lot on Twitter, but you're you're probably not uh, following those threads because they don't involve your software. So because and I hope it, not. No, and it is and it is big companies a lot of the time, which are harder to get get some communication from. So uh, I I think voiceover users sometimes have pretty high expectations, and sometimes they're met, and sometimes they're not. But uh, you've had the opportunity to write and podcast about development issues for a long time, including voiceover and accessibility specifically. But I guess I wonder, do you feel like you've had the opportunity to influence other developers? Have you talked to other developers about accessibility? I think ultimately just any kind of like talking about it publicly really helps because it is so easy to do. And the only reason why there's any voiceover problems in any apps is because developers aren't aware about it enough. You know, they they don't realize that a that these problems exist because maybe they haven't been notified of them and don't and aren't aware of them, and b I don't think they realize how easy they are to fix. That's why like almost every voiceover bug I've ever had has really been like a one line fix. It's and that's why it's so embarrassing. It's like oh geez, why didn't I actually like you know test the screen after I made the change but before I shipped it? So I, I think the more that we can do as a as a developer community to talk about these features even existing and these problems existing and to, to tell people how easy it is to fix that I think is the best 
thing that any of us can do to help. And so I hope I have done that to whatever degree I have. Um, obviously, I, I could do it more. Um, but that, I think, it, it, awareness is the biggest problem here because it's so easy to fix once you know there's a problem there. I guess I was just wondering if you'd ever had any specific feedback from another developer who said, hey, I hadn't thought of this. I, I implemented it. Now I've got happy users or something like that. Maybe. I mean, I don't, I, I've probably gotten like one or two tweets like that at some point over the last yeah. decade. <laughs> sure. Come on. Can't you remember every single response you've gotten over the past 10 years? Come on now. Oh, God. That um, would be very mentally unhealthy. <laughs> right. In, in, yes, in many ways. So, <laughs> So what's your general take on accessibility? And I don't know what other platforms you develop for, but I guess I'm wondering what you, you think of the accessibility uh, tools that are made available uh, through from Apple via iOS and macOS, but I guess specifically iOS for, for this purpose. But do you have any sense of how well Apple continues to do in this area? I don't really have any firsthand experience. Um, I'm fortunate enough not to need to use most of the accessibility features, uh, but you know, that's, as everyone knows, that's a temporary situation. Like at some point I'm going to increase the font size or, or need more sure. than that. Um, but I have heard yeah, yeah. over and over again from others that Apple's accessibility support is really first class. That while you can get various tools and things on other platforms uh, or other media, that Apple's is really, really the best. Um, and it, it isn't always perfect, like like everything else Apple does. You know, like, I, I think it's it's just like everything else Apple does. Like the average of it is best in class, and they they have their flaws and they have their stumbles, but they usually correct them. And the average over time is pretty good. And and you'd say that the development tools, the we talked about documentation before, but you'd say that what what's given to developers in terms of implementing accessibility is what's needed are there any big lacks that you're aware of or things you'd like them to do differently the tools themselves are actually really good for the most part like the the apis the tools like like they make it pretty easy on us to implement develop, uh, accessibility stuff properly uh, if we know about it and choose to do it that's why i think I, I made a blog post to this effect a while back i think testing for voiceover dynamic type and the other basic accessibility features should be part of app review. It's not right now. They like if 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 your app shows a bug or crashes during app review, when Apple's reviewing your app before they put it on the store, they'll reject it for any bug or crash they come across during app review. And I know the you know the the time economics of this can be tricky because I think they only have something like an average of 6 minutes to spend on each app they review. It's something like that. It's it's a really quick Jeez. review. Um <laughs> And any crash, you know, immediately ends it and you get rejected. But anyway, yeah. so like it, it's pretty quick. So maybe they don't have the time to test this, but maybe they should. Uh, because if they just tested it during app review in voiceover, in other technologies, this solves two problems. Number one, it will tell the developer if they've broken something. Because app review, you know, as much as developers complain about it, it can save our butts from shipping bugs to customers. Like if, if our app crashes during app review... I shouldn't get mad. Like if my app crashes and I get rejected, I should thank them for finding the crash before it got out to more people. Uh, and so similarly, I would love if they would test for various accessibility stuff because I don't want to ship accessibility bugs and they can save me from that. So it can, it can address that problem. But number two, and I think, you know, customers, this is a much bigger problem for, there is no way for customers to tell in the app store without downloading or buying the app there's no way for customers to tell whether it is accessible and through what technologies. And so 
if you're a voiceover user, you go to the app store, you don't know until you've downloaded an app, possibly having paid money for it, you don't even know whether it is usable in voiceover until you've downloaded it. People who don't use these technologies, we have a luxury that we know that Apple has tested every app in the store for its basic functionality. We know that if we download an app that says it's going to crop our photos or whatever, it will be able to crop our photos. We will download it. It will work. It will, ser- it will serve the advertised function. And so if that app you know, costs a few bucks or whatever, we, we can feel safe spending that money knowing that this will, this will work for us. But if you're a voiceover user, there's nothing in the store that tells you that, and they don't test for it. So you have no guarantee whether an app you're looking at is going to even function for you. And that, I think, is a huge hole in, in Apple's you know, app store uh, policies and perceptions that you know, the rest of us have this wonderful luxury, and voiceover users don't. So I think, at minimum, they should allow app developers to opt in to being tested for this and then show some kind of little badge on the app page saying tested, you know, it works in voiceover, works with dynamic text, et cetera. Like have like, you know, in the same way it tells you what devices it works on. It'll say, you know, works with iPod touch, sixth generation or whatever. Like it it should tell you what assistive technologies that people have opted into being tested if that's how they do it. Or the best solution is they should just test all apps for this as part of app review. That may be unrealistic with time constraints. I have no idea, but there needs to be some kind of testing involved and, and standard involved at the app store level because that will make it better for everybody. It'll make it better for developers so, so we won't accidentally ship these bugs. And if we do, we can have a chance to fix them. And it makes it better for customers who use these, these technologies because they can have the same assurance that everyone else does that the things in the app store will work the way they say they will. So you think lack of accessibility support should be treated as a bug or as a reason for ban- essentially rejecting an app? In the best case scenario, yes, absolutely. In the you know compromise scenario, we should be able to opt into that testing and then have that shown to customers. Anything else? Anything we haven't covered about iOS accessibility? Your experiences with it? What you'd like to see? Um, recollections of the bygone past? I know I, making people go back ten years is, is kind of difficult, but uh, I don't know if anything we've talked about has sort of jogged your memory about your encounters with voiceover, especially back in the day. Or accessibility generally, no, I, I don't think so. Besides how many times my phone said voiceover on in the middle of a loud play or a public place, <laughs> the quiet places are the worst ones. <laughs> Besides that, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. Yes. Well, that is a, a, and a common problem for people with people in their lives who are not voiceover users and they have to call the family and go, how do I get voiceover off on this device? Actually, you know what? I, I did I did actually have a really nice um, story about, about that. Uh, just last summer... Uh, my father-in-law had a screen failure, a partial screen failure on his iPad. And the screen was just blank. And over the phone, I talked him through turning on voiceover via Siri, because Siri still worked, and then swiping on the screen still worked. So he couldn't see anything on the screen, so he was using it as a voiceover user would. The screen, he couldn't see the screen, and he was, I was like, all right, swipe right, swipe right, swipe right. And it, would, it was reading the controls. I'm like, swipe until you hear this button and then double tap. <laughs> he, he was swiping. Nice. And, and we, I talked <laughs> him through like a couple of diagnostics um, w- with the screen totally non-functioning, using Siri to turn, on, to turn voiceover on in the first place and then using voiceover to navigate everything. It was great. And, and I can only do that because A, this technology exists. <laughs> and B, you can turn it on without the screen working. Uh, and C, uh, I knew how to use it. Great. Well, I really appreciate your time. This has been very helpful. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. I kind of want to get a sense of where you come to accessibility 
from? Like, I know you're a developer. I know something about your background. But if you can kind of just give us a, a, a thumbnail of how you come to have an interest in knowledge of accessibility, specifically in Apple platforms, but I guess in general as well. Okay, absolutely. Um, so uh, I was a software developer for a number of years. Uh, I've I changed careers in the last few years. I'm a novelist now, but um, I was heavily involved in software development. Uh, I wasn't particularly conscious of accessibility at all. Um, I was peripherally aware of it, of course. You would occasionally encounter APIs and so on, but it wasn't something that impacted my life. And then when I was, I think when I was about sort of 30 or 31 years old, um, I had a, a sort of medical scare, uh, a vision-related scare. I was going for my regular opticians uh, checkup uh, every two years, and they thought they'd found um, what's called a scintillating response on the macular of the eye, uh, which is the sort of big f- uh, photosensitive area at the rear of the eye responsible for uh, central vision, so the, the detailed vision of whatever you're looking at at the time. Uh, I was referred to uh, an ophthalmologist, I uh, went to the hospital, had a whole series of tests, etc., etc., um, because the fear was that I might potentially be displaying uh, early signs of a condition called age-related macular degeneration, uh, which as the name implies tends to happen in older people. It uh, turned out that I wasn't but uh, I was sort of monitored quite closely for a number of years. And, and as I say, it served as a bit of a, a, a wake-up call and a, quite a fright. It was a very stressful time, and it went on for ages because of all the tests, etc., etc. And I, I, at, at some point in the middle of this, I, I came home and I thought, well, what happens if I lose my sight? What happens if I lose my central vision? I can no longer focus on anything. Uh, what am I still going to be able to do? Uh, I guess it's the, the, the classic situation for uh, an abled person who's who's never had any particular impairments and thus has never got given it any thought, suddenly uh, confronted with the, the visceral terror, I suppose, of the idea of losing even gradually one of your senses. And uh, a voiceover uh, was a, a, certainly a term that I had heard, uh, uh, but I'd never looked into it at all. So I pulled up the voiceover tutorial. Uh, I was using macOS at the time, even though I'm full-time on iOS now. And when you switch on voiceover on, on macOS 10, or, or just macOS as it's called now, um, it gives you this sort of interactive tutorial that you can walk through. And I went and got a scarf and tied it around my my eyes like a like a, a you know, an eye mask sort of thing so I couldn't see and I walked through the tutorial and I learned um, that I could actually still use my computer and I could still communicate I would still be able to write I would probably still be able to develop software um, up to a certain point with sufficient practice. And during a very sort of dark and stressful time, it was a, a wee bit of a, a metaphorical ray of light, I suppose. And I was so moved by the uh, the sort of the, the experience of doing that. I, I took the scarf off and I wept. 
just in in relief, uh, which I, I think is quite understandable. And that was what made me aware of accessibility. So it's, I guess it's a fairly dramatic story compared to um, the way that a lot of developers come to it. But I, I became extremely conscious of it. And I educated myself about the voiceover APIs and just some of the considerations involved in developing uh, for accessibility. Some of these assumptions that people make, for example, the, the, the assumption among sighted people that you're either fully sighted or you're fully blind. Uh, it's very common to not consider that there's an entire spectrum of visual ability or impairment or whatever it is. And there's a whole number of different technologies and tactics and techniques that we can use to address those things. So I was, I was uh, learning about this later on in my career, but as a, a, a complete newcomer to it. And because of the, not not because I was trying to help provide for my potential future self but rather because i'd had that emotional awakening of how you know how different life would be if i didn't have in my case my eyesight but equally well it could be a loss of hearing or loss of uh, fine motor control or uh, reduced cognitive ability I became very passionate about it. And ever since then, even after moving away from software development, I do try to advocate for accessibility and accessible design uh, whenever I can. So when did you have that light bulb moment? How long ago? Uh, I, I feel like it would be about maybe eight years ago, something like that. So macOS VoiceOver had been out for a while. iOS VoiceOver existed, but you were learning in macOS. Yes, that's right. I did have um, iOS devices around that time, I, su I suppose. I'm not really very aware of the specific timeline of when particular devices were released, but um, I do have memories, certainly, of playing with voiceover on the iPhone and on iPads whenever they came into my life. And uh, I've always actually preferred the iOS model for voiceover. I mean, I prefer the direct tactile interface Anyway, I, I found uh, voiceover harder to learn on the Mac, even with the tutorial. But uh, yeah, I, I used it on, on all of the platforms. I think that's true of a lot of people. I think macOS voiceover is, a lot of people come to it from other screen readers on desktop platforms, but iOS, once they get into it, I think people, that's, that's not uncommon. I've heard that a lot before. So what kind of development were you doing when you were at this ray of light moment and then did that change the development that you did thereafter before you switched over to writing novels? I was uh, I was doing a lot of, um, I, I made a couple of apps, sort of little apps myself, but the vast bulk of my work was as a, a consultant software engineer and the majority of that was for uh, user experience design and user interface design. An awful lot of it was custom controls and I also made a lot of components of that type and made them available uh, via open source and obviously that's uh, accessibility is critical in that area because um, making custom controls you can make something that is in effect completely opaque to a non-sighted user if you don't make the effort to expose it via the accessibility APIs so I was able to sort of put these these things that I was learning about into practice immediately by trying to make my own uh, open source components and uh, the work I was doing for clients as well uh, to make them accessible 
via voiceover, which it really is not difficult. I mean, I've, I've not been a software developer in a few years now, but certainly back then it was, you could get about sort of 80, 85% of the way with very little effort. The, the important thing was realizing that accessibility is important and getting into the mindset of applying it rather than it being any kind of technical challenge. And did you learn through looking at Apple's tools and documentation or through tinkering or what was the biggest help to you in trying to learn how accessibility worked on Apple platforms? I, I did read Apple's uh, documentation, but uh, I, th I think the main thing that helped me was, uh, well, it was two things, I suppose. One, it was testing because um, there's really no substitute for testing on the device. If you know how to use voiceover and you can, for example, switch on the, the, the screen curtain, which blacks out the entire screen and really forces you to use the, the non-sighted interface, you immediately, uh, you can't help but notice the areas in which um, the interface is opaque or it's a, a sort of fiddly navigation, it's substandard accessibility or it's too verbose or, or whatever. So I, I found that the physically testing the code myself on devices was the main way that I learned because I, I knew that anything that frustrated me would frustrate anyone else. Uh, but also a, a huge help were some of the third party um, sites and communities for uh, accessibility users on the Apple platforms. Um, I'm trying to remember maybe Apple Viz, Mac Accessibility, those are names that uh, still spring to mind. So I would uh, just sort of read their views on things, particularly whenever Apple released a new version of uh, Mac OS X or iOS, there would always be an article on some of these sites with effectively the voiceover release notes, what had changed, what had been fixed, what had been broken anew often and how that helped. And it just really helped me sort of to get into that mindset and know what I should be implementing and what I should be testing. And did you, uh, you said you were doing custom controls more so, I guess, than, than apps, but are you aware of any apps that your controls ever became a part of, or did you make any standalone, anything people would recognize that have some of your work in it? Um, I mean, back in the day, uh, my my controls were used in, in so many apps, that were, but there was, a lot of it was quite generic stuff, like little sort of pop-up windows and... and uh, scope bars, uh, if, if you know what that is, a sort of uh, visual filtering mechanism for Finder windows and, right. and things like that. Um, there were also some kind of experimental sort of pop-up contextual tile-based menus, uh, which were fully voiceover compatible, that they found their way into some graphics apps. Uh, as I say, it was a, a good number of years ago. There was also a, a custom sort of split view with controller with draggable dividers that got into a lot of apps and then was later uh, sort of superseded when Apple updated their APIs to be as flexible. Uh, I, I, I can't name apps offhand, but for a number of years there, whenever you opened the About box or pane in an app, um, you know, more likely than not, my name was in there someplace. <laughs> and both on iOS and macOS, or one more than the other? Uh, it was, uh, what would it be? I, I guess it really shifted. It started with being more on macOS, but then as my interests shifted, and as of course, as the market for development shifted to be very much towards iOS, it drifted to then be more on the iOS side. So it kind of evolved with my own development interests and the sort of market context as well.
You're talking about the community and picking stuff up from them. It's interesting because the, one of the reasons I thought of talking to you, I've known about you for a while, but uh, I connected with Marco Arment, who was an early passionate advocate for accessibility as a developer, and he, he just seemed really impatient with people who weren't supporting accessibility. And he did a podcast a long time ago, like six or seven years where, ago, where he pointed to an article you had written about how to implement voiceover accessibility. I think it was specifically on iOS. And he was, if, if you could, I imagined him, I could only hear him, but I imagined him sort of shaking his finger at people and going, why don't you do this? It's so simple. It's so straightforward. But would you, would you concur with that? Does it seem like something that is, should be pretty easy for, for developers to incorporate into their apps? Absolutely. I mean, the, the technical challenge is remarkably uh, modest uh, often it's it's literally just a case of applying some uh, traits uh, within xcode to pieces of your interface so that voiceover can determine whether something should be read aloud uh, to the user or whether something uh, can be interacted with in a certain way um the I would I would say for the, the vast majority of apps that don't use incredibly fancy fancy custom interfaces, you can get as I would say about ninety percent of the way there at, at least without writing a single line of code. So that's where the frustration comes in because when you know that when you've worked with these APIs, uh, you know that in the space of maybe a few hours or a couple of days, you could completely transform. Uh, non-sighted for example users experience of your app but developers who quite understandably and through no fault of their own are not really aware of what accessibility is about or how it can possibly work uh, they're afraid of it and they perhaps also understandably see it as a low priority because it's it's not uh, probably the bulk of the market is not a, a, a hugely sexy uh, item to put in your release notes or on your website um, and they don't really a lot of people probably don't even understand how for example a blind person could possibly use a touchscreen device at all so I, I think it would be I think the biggest thing it could help would be if Apple were to really start pushing accessibility from the point of view of saying this is how simple it actually is for developers and this is how much of a difference it can make in, in the lives of someone, sort of literally transforming their entire their independence, their ability to, to communicate and socialise and do things for themselves. Uh, it's it's, a, it's an, a knowledge and understanding gap rather than any kind of technological hurdle. It seems like Apple has promoted accessibility from the user side, but you're saying that they should do more to encourage developers to uh, support accessibility in their apps? Well, of course. I mean, developers are, are the gatekeepers, really, aren't they? Um, it's, it's obviously magnificent to have the operating system itself and the stock apps uh, being accessible, which by and large they are. Uh, but so many of us rely on dozens of third-party apps for any number of purposes and those apps are made possible by developers so it's, it's the third-party developers that need to become conscious of this and I think Apple they could be a little more active maybe a little more forceful uh, in terms of pushing accessibility adoption sort of do it on a, a, a dual 
kind of approach where on one hand you say this is incredibly easy and it makes a huge difference to people's lives and so on and so forth but also I think they could probably do with coercing uh, developers to a certain extent perhaps by uh, I was I was saying this on, on Twitter just the other day they could perhaps if an app didn't support at least a, a basically usable voiceover interface then exclude it from eligibility for editor's choice or apple design awards or being featured on the app store as app of the day or something like that just to sort of gently twist their arms up their back sort of thing would you go so far as to say that apps should have to include some sort of badge that indicates their accessibility support or would you just do it more through what you're just talking about highlighting in an editor's choice and app of the day that sort of thing uh, it's, 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 it's difficult to, to say universally. I mean, I know that in the United States, for example, I, I believe um, there are certain regulations that, for example, websites and I think other technologies uh, to be used by government employees require to have a certain level of accessibility support. Um, I, I, I believe I'm, you know, I'm not an expert at all. But and I think we have similar things in the United Kingdom uh, Whereas, I mean, Apple's a private company. You don't want to to sort of legislate, as it were, quote unquote. But I think I think they're in a position to do something that could be very effective, but to do it more gently than necessarily having a sort of like a traffic light system for apps. Although it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing if they forced the issue for a while. Now you. You got to this a little bit earlier, and you may not be able to answer it directly. But do you do you have an awareness of when VoiceOver came to iOS? It was 2009, which I mostly know because I went back and looked it up. Uh, but was was that something that you remember having any awareness of? That all it was wasn't there, and then it was. I, I yeah, I remember when. Um it sort of entered the vernacular and when people started talking about it and I'm I'm sort of vaguely I vaguely recall thinking well that's a wonderful thing it's very Apple it's very inclusive um, isn't technology wonderful hurrah for humanity all that kind of thing uh, the way that people respond to something that is socially positive but has no direct impact on their own personal lives at all um, I, I, I do remember that uh, but as I say it never really hit me and gained that clarity and urgency until I, you know, had reason to be af- to, to be afraid that I might need it. Well, let me pick up that thread and ask you, uh, where's what's your vision status these days? My prescription has been stable for a number of years. Um, I was moved to annual checkups for a while. We usually have... Uh, checkups every second year here there's no uh, charge for eye tests and, and so forth in Scotland that's all uh, provided sort of f- you know free quote unquotes uh, by the taxpayer like your higher education um, my my eyesight isn't fantastic I'm fairly long sighted so I have quite powerful lenses uh, but regular uh, lenses and it doesn't seem to be deteriorating uh i'm not i'm beyond the point where i could ever have laser uh, surgery for example but i i can see absolutely fine and i you know drive a car and all that sort of thing so i'm i'm okay 
That's good to hear. So, so that didn't affect your decision to change careers. That was that something else you just you had a creative desire to write novels instead of writing software, or or, or were they connected at all? Oh no, they were completely independent. I'd uh, been quite passionate about uh, creative writing when I was in my my teenage years, and I sort of got sidetracked by high school and university went through the career in software engineering and then towards the latter half of my 30s I thought if I'm ever going to pursue this dream I ought to do it before I get much older and that's why I did that. It wasn't uh, related to the scare with my vision although when I did have the this, this scare uh, I did think um, well maybe this is a change that I could make because it was something that felt more feasible to do uh, if I had lost my sight than software engineering. Certainly, I don't think I would have been able to continue doing uh, user interface design and custom controls because of the probably the necessary visual element. Although I, I don't doubt that there are people doing that very thing, uh, even with impaired vision. It's incredible what people can do. Sure, and there's always testing needed because you have to account for different types of vision and that sort of thing. So Indeed, indeed. What else, uh, what haven't we covered to do with iOS accessibility or voiceover, either in terms of your, your memories or in terms of what you would like to see in the future? Just, just your overall thoughts on uh, where voiceover is right now. Um, I've, I, I keep vague track uh, of voiceover, certainly when there's a major new iOS release. I do still read those articles on uh, accessibility or whatever and check out the new stuff and I do occasionally have these uh, these ophthalmologist checkups which of course involves the the drops in your your eyes that allow the the pupils to fully dilate so that makes it impossible for me to focus for a number of hours and I'm I'm glad to be able to use a voiceover during that time um in terms of what needs to be done I think I'm not the right person to ask because it's not something I'm I'm in contact with daily someone that absolutely relies on voiceover is, is always the person to ask for that um, I think that it, it feels like it's reached a certain level of uh, utility and pervasive support through the system that the challenges at this point are primarily I, I think probably in adoption and awareness. I'm sure there are things that need to be done uh, on the technical side, but I, I think that in terms of the sort of per unit of effort and time and money, the greatest gain would be from Apple making it so much more visible and, as I say, perhaps pushing a bit more forcefully towards adoption. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me about this. I'm hoping to publish this on the anniversary of VoiceOver being announced. I appreciate the invitation. I'm very much looking forward to listening to the finished product. Thank you so much to Matt Gemmel, along with Marco Armit, for talking to me about iOS accessibility and development. In two weeks, we'll have another episode featuring an interview I did for 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk. This one will be with Jonathan Mosen, who is a fairly well-known figure in accessible technology. And you may remember him as the fellow with the Kiwi accent who had some provocative things to say about Apple in the documentary. So stay tuned for that. For now, if you have comments about this or any episode of Parallel, please hit me up at Parallel Pods over on Twitter. That's also where you can subscribe to get updates when a new episode is available. Or you can chat me up at Shelly on Twitter, S-H-E-L-L-Y, 
And if you want to subscribe to the show, if for some reason you are not subscribed, go to relay.fm slash parallel. And I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Bye-bye.